We have Mariah McManus delivering a sermon by remote to Mosaic Church in Los Angeles. And we're just going to cover it. Going to cover the details of what it means to have a woman delivering a sermon. We're going to talk about Erwin McManus, one of my heroes when I was an evangelical pastor. And we'll go through the whole thing. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. you make your life huge that's how God expands your life is when you live it for others if you're looking out only for yourself it'll cripple your understanding of how God moves it's exactly the opposite of having deep consciousness it's being unaware going back to your everyday life of being unaware of the way God is moving around All right, so we've got Mariah McManus preaching a sermon by remote at Mosaic in Los Angeles. You'll hear me critique that whole notion uh, in the sermon critique. Um, but I do want to say that, you know, to be honest, Erwin McManus comes across to me as an authentic individual. In a lot of ways, um, I greatly admired him as an evangelical pastor, and that's really what we're going to try to explore here. Um, I want to don't want to take too much away from the sermon critique, so let's not gild the lily and get right to it.
What's up, you guys? My name is Mariah McManus. Welcome to Mosaic. It's going to be such a beautiful day. I get the privilege and honor of working here on our Hollywood team. I'm on the worship team and lead our MSC group, and I love doing it. I'll pretty much do anything they let me do. Um, I have an amazing husband. His name is Jake Clifford Goss. He's awesome. We have a dog named Pablo, and yeah, we've been married for almost five years now. And it's just so fun. It's crazy. He's a, a touring musician, and he's always out of town, and we're always missing each other. But the last four months, we've been super together all the time. And so that's been like a huge adjustment. <laughs> so if you're married and, you know, maybe you guys work and travel and now you're, you're, um, you have the, let's say, the opportunity to be together every waking moment, then just know that I'm encouraging you. I see you. I'm praying for you. Good luck. Hopefully things open soon. <laughs> we got this. Um, I had the amazing opportunity to lead this church with my family, my dad, Erwin, my mom, Kim, my brother, Aaron, my sweet brother, and I look up to them so much. I'm so grateful that I'm able to do this, that I have the opportunity to do this. Okay, so the unique advantage of being up here, and no one's up here with me, is that I can tell stories about my family from my own perspective before you hear them from anyone else. So recently, my brother Aaron and I, my dad Erwin, and my friend Tess, we were playing paddle tennis. So, you know, I will just say, because no one's here to, to argue with me, that Aaron and I were dominating. We were winning every game. We were amazing. We were crushing it. That day, we just the first game, we just started. Aaron and I were about to win the game. Everyone looks away for one second, and my sweet father has fallen. So, you know, my dad, he's one of the most competitive people on the planet, and he'll try to tell you otherwise, but he's in his 60s, and, you know, he's on the top of his game, and he wants you to know it. He wants to win every game. He wants to crush you. He wants you to know who's boss and who's the father and who's the, 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 the main guy on campus, okay? So this is very important. But he, he tends to, how do I say this lightly? He tends to get hurt all the time. So, you know, he plays basketball, and with all these young guys, he gets <laughs> hurt a lot every time. You know, it's to the point where, like, we don't really feel bad for him anymore because he just comes home with a new injury every day. But, you know, I still care about it. I still love him. You know, it just, it'll get me anyways. But one thing about my dad and I is we have this very unique connection. We have, like, a twin twin, like, we can read each other's minds, we can finish each other's sentences, we get the best gifts for each other, we know each other's next move. There's, there's a really, really deep bond between my dad and I because we're really, really similar. So, you know, we were just about to win this game, he falls over. No one sees what happens. He falls a lot with, you know, when he's playing games, he hurts himself a lot. So, not everyone thinks a lot of it. But when I see him, a light went on in my head, and I, I knew that something was wrong. And he has a lot of different, like, fetal positions and pain, pain like, reactions, and you kind of have to go down the list of, of, you know, what he might be feeling. So it could be that he's hurt, but he wants to, he's going to come back and destroy you. Or it could be, you know, that he's hurt, but he's laughing it off. Um, it could be a multitude of things. But there is one specific type of reaction that's he's hurt and we have to go to the hospital. So I see him laying on the ground. We can't see his face. We don't know what happened. But everyone else, Aaron doesn't believe he's hurt. He's like, he's fine. Just let him get up. Aaron's in competition mode. He was very, very focused. Tess is like, 
just really sweet and like pretty bad at paddle tennis at this point. So she's just along for the ride. And then I see him and I had to jump over. I I think it was like a, a, you know, slow motion born identity moment where I like, I jumped over the net and I went to rescue my dad. And when I flipped him over, he was bleeding everywhere, everywhere. And because my dad and I are so close, I've seen him you know, in many different situations like this. It always kills me. It always, it always freaks me out. I, I reacted very dramatically because I'm also Kim's daughter and I, and I am theatrical. And um, once I finally saw that he was bleeding everywhere, I yelled to everyone to go get, you know, uh, a doctor, to go get towels, to go get, you know, whatever. And we didn't know where the bleeding was coming from. But it was pretty severe. But something that was so um, unique to me looking back at that is that I knew that my dad wasn't okay. My dad and I have such a unique relationship where I could know what he was feeling without ever seeing what happened, without having any context. It made me think of this idea of consciousness, that, that sometimes we go through life being completely unaware of our surroundings. To be conscious means to be awake and to be aware of your surroundings. So sometimes we, we sit in traffic for hours and we think it's normal because we live in L.A. or we pay $7 for a coffee and don't think twice about it. But what if this idea of consciousness made us so acutely aware of our existence that we could not ignore the movement of God all around us? And this reminds me of a scripture in 1 Peter 1. And I'll go through a bunch of scriptures, but we'll start at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. It says, What a God we have, and how fortunate we are to have him, this Father of our Master Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us in the future. The day is coming when you'll have it all, life healed and whole. I know how great this makes you feel, even though you have to put up with every kind of aggravation in the meantime. It's encouraging, right? Pure gold put in the fire comes out of it proved pure. Genuine faith put through this suffering comes out proved genuine. When Jesus wraps this all up, it's your faith, not your gold, that will have that God will have on display as evidence of his victory. And then we'll jump down to verse 13. It says, so roll up your sleeves, put your mind in gear, be totally ready to receive the gift that is coming when Jesus arrives. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then, but you do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy, you be holy. You call out to God for help and he helps. He is a good father that way. But don't forget, he's also a responsible father and won't let you get by with sloppy living. And this is the verse that I just love. It says, your life is a journey. You must travel with a deep consciousness of God. Okay, so first of all, I have no idea what version of the Bible she's reading from there. A deep consciousness of God. Well, um, perhaps it's a proper translation, but uh, it sounds a little, I don't know. We'll just set that aside for a second. First of all, this is Mariah McManus, and uh, she is the daughter of Erwin McManus, uh, a man who I greatly admired as an evangelical. Um, 
And to be honest with you, uh, I listened through actually some of uh, Pastor McManus's sermons before listening before coming across this one, uh, where they're doing the remote sermons, uh, you know, online and that sort of thing. And it's interesting to me that even after all these years since I, I've been removed from being an evangelical pastor, that you still kind of have a formula for how you're going to preach a sermon. You you start off with a with an introduction. Usually this involves a personal story that you are personally involved with that will lead you into really the points you're going to make um, in in the sermon. And, and Mariah here is, is really following that formula and that's really what I want to drive at in some ways here that there is a liturgy to everything so anyone anyone that tells you that they don't follow a liturgy um, that's not true uh, the liturgy may change from Sunday to Sunday but the liturgy is there nonetheless um, and so that brings up this question of what, what value does liturgy have? In other words, how do we plan out a church service? Um, and what value do those plans have? And how often should they change? Um, one thing I want to say about Earl McManus is, um, you know, I, I don't know for sure. But in listening to some of his sermons prior to this, um, I think he's an authentic guy. I really do believe that he wants people to be reached with the gospel. Uh, and he is taking this whole movement of pop evangelicalism to the extreme uh, that it should be taken to, <laughs> if, 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 you would, if, if you could put it that way. Um, and I, I don't know that he's, that he's been rest down by the culture, even in, in a place like L.A., L.A. County, Orange County, Hollywood, that's where Mosaic Church is. To say that he still wants people to be saved. I think that's true. Um, again, we might we might review another one of his sermons that I listened to. I was thinking about uh, critiquing a sermon that he gave just this last week. Uh, but I, but I wanted to go with this one from his daughter Mariah because I um, because here's where I think he, you know he might be succumbing to the culture a little bit in you know kind of making this a family business, putting his daughter Mariah in in the crosshairs of of the enemy uh, by putting her in the position of pastor. And incidentally, so we talk about uh, you know especially we as Lutherans. Those of us who hold Scripture to be the inerrant, infallible Word of God say that women should not be pastors. Women should not preach. Why Why do we say that? Well, we say that for the same reason, I think, because of the same reason we don't want to put our daughters and our wives on the front line of a battlefield because that's where, that's where us men belong. We men belong on the front line of the battlefield. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a social experiment when it comes to combat that's real and it's no place for us men to either slight or usurp our responsibility to protect our families that's no place to do that and, and the pulpit is the same thing you're on the front lines 
of a spiritual battle. And we don't put our women up there. That's the first thing. We're, we're, we're. I believe the same thing about trucking, incidentally, and stealing. I mean, I see a lot of girl truckers out there. A lot of girl stealers. I don't have a problem with it if they do the job, you know, in a lot of ways. But it, but at the same time, why, why are we putting our, our, our women in harm's way? That's that's what doesn't make sense to me. It's not it's not a it's not a sexist thing like oh you women don't belong here or you're not good enough to do this job or whatever else. That's not the point. Obviously, Mariah here is a very good speaker, very compelling. She, I mean, her opening salvo here, her opening uh, story, it's very compelling about her dad, and she she goes right into uh, this scripture passage. Which again, I'm not I'm not sure what what translation this comes from. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter. She's doing a nice job. She really is. She's a good speaker, especially in this situation where there's nobody, there's no crowd to react to her. Um, you know, she, she's got to kind of do this on her own. She's doing a nice job. That's not the point. The point is, is that we, you know, part, I believe that part of a man's job is to protect his family and to stand up for those he loves and to, 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 allow our, our wives, our daughters to be put in those frontline situations where they're the most vulnerable. I just don't agree with that. I think only men should be put in those situations. And I think that's why Holy Scripture just basically assumes that we would know that. You know, uh, but in our day and time, people assume that Holy Scripture is misogynist and bigoted and I wonder sometimes the Holy Spirit does go, huh? What? Wait a minute. No, we're, we're not being misogynist and bigoted here. We're saying men have this role of protecting the less, the, the, the more vulnerable. And I don't care however you slice it, you know. And that, and that's what that's what I think frustrates a lot of us with more traditional values is. The notion of man and woman doesn't doesn't even really matter anymore. Because we know that you know the the strongest, the most capable, you know, you, you take somebody like Mariah here, who is, is a very capable speaker. She's able to do the job. She's probably a better speaker than most men out there, more relatable, able to draw you in, all these things. And despite that. You know, why, why do we want to keep her aside? You know, take somebody like Beth Moore, charismatic speaker, charismatic leader, powerful influencer in the Southern Baptist Convention. Why do we want to suppress her voice? Well, that's not what anybody's trying to do. Nobody's trying to suppress anybody here. We're trying to protect. We, I think we forget sometimes that this stuff is real and that somebody preaching puts a target right on their back for the enemy in a spiritual way. And we forget that because, quite frankly, we don't believe what Holy Scripture says about these things. That's what's going on here. And so, as eloquent and brilliant of a speaker as Mariah is, the place for her is not in the pulpit on a Sunday morning. And that's where she is right here. She is giving the sermon for Mosaic Church albeit remotely, 
but she's putting that big target on her back and her husband should not allow her to be on those front lines. He should be protecting her. He should be saying, "Hun, I love you. I think you're a great speaker. And those gifts and talents can be used in, in, in other ways or, or whatever. But to put, put the woman up on the front line, I just don't agree with that. Because, again, even as, as, a, as strong as she is, even as strong as any given woman is in the military, one of the weakest men is going to be stronger than her. That's just the facts, folks. I mean, physically speaking. We men were built to protect. And putting our women on the front line, whether in, in, in a warfare situation or a spiritual, spiritual situation, is, is malpractice. And that's what scripture points out. Um, and I would be... Wouldn't be surprised if having a conversation with God the Holy Spirit, you know, just one-on-one, we always talk about that. But God... The Trinity, the Godhead saying, wait, wait, wait a second. Why are these people confused about why we don't want women on the front lines of the spiritual battle? Why are they confused about that? That shouldn't be an issue. But yet, in our day and time, it is. So there's there's that piece. Um, and the couple things, the, the one reason why I thought about doing Pastor McManus's uh, sermon was because just to talk about this whole idea of the church being quarantined and we can't gather together and talk about how important it is for us to gather together. Um, and how, you know, we as Lutherans, we, we can't do church remotely. It's not possible. Because the Lord's Supper is the central feature of the liturgy. The liturgy is there. I pointed out the liturgy that really... Uh, Mariah is is bringing forth here this whole idea of, okay, we're going to tell a really captivating story to draw people in. Then we're going to give our, you know, give our scriptural passage and then we're going to preach on it and then give our points and so on and so forth. There's a, there's a whole liturgy that goes along with uh, this kind of homiletics that I learned very well when I was in the evangelical seminaries. Um, and part of the, a, a crucial part of church is the gathering together in person can't be done uh, remotely not properly especially if you're Lutheran Um, it has to be done in person and so that's you know that's one thing I wanted to point out here Um, again I am I've kind of jumped back into this uh, sermon critique thing of of the pop evangelicals I mean, look at the production value here. Look at the, you know, what you know, what are they, what are they trying to do, and what is that premised on? That's premised on, um, hey, if we do something really slick and fancy, this is going to appeal to those who don't believe, and they're going to become believers, and so on and so forth. When I question that, I question that. I wonder if following the traditions of our fathers as closely as we can might be the path forward. So anyway, uh, so there's all the the preliminaries there. Um, Let's go ahead and get into the substance of of Mariah's uh, talk. 
I recently got to see the movie Harriet. And, you know, I learned about Harriet Tubman as, as a girl in school. But something really stood out to me as I've, as I've matured, as I've grown up, as I've learned and had my own personal encounters with God. Something really unique about Harriet Tubman was that she was hit on the head when she was a young girl. That she was actually, she was hit on the head because she was actually protecting someone from being hurt. She was hit on the head and in her life she was diagnosed with having seizures. She, she was told to have brain damage. And something that she said was that she would have these visions of God, that when she was having what people thought were seizures or people thought were um, some medical situation, she was having visions of God. And we know that Harriet Tubman led hundreds of slaves into freedom because of those seizures, which medical professionals or whoever was around her might have said, we know that she had visions of God, that she was so in tune, she was acutely aware of God's presence, of God's direction, of God's voice, that God could lead her specifically to freedom. And she came back, I think 19 times, to rescue person after person after person. And every time God led them into freedom because of her acute awareness, her deep consciousness of God. And Harriet Tubman had the nickname Moses. There are so many parallels between Harriet Tubman and Moses. Moses led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. He led millions of people into freedom. And there are so many different moments in the book of Exodus where God and Moses have intimate conversations, where God actually tells Moses what his next step should be, where God moves through Moses to set people free. You know, the, one of the first things that we remember, and I'm sure we've all heard this, is Moses and God at the burning bush. That's one of the first encounters. And then you have things like the plagues. You have God turning the staff into a snake. There's all these different crazy things that only could happen in the Bible. You just can't mix this stuff up. There are so many intimate conversations between Moses and God. And as um, the plagues came and as Pharaoh finally let the Israelites leave Egypt, we thought that was the end. It seemed like the perfect storybook ending. Pharaoh let them go. Moses set the people free. When they were released, Pharaoh changed his mind. And I want to pick up in Exodus 14, 5 through 16. It says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about, what, about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers all over them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Piharoth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people. And I think this is, when I think about Moses answering the people in this moment, you just think of this epic 
Braveheart status speech. It says, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I think this is a really, really interesting nuance. So um, just a quick point here with liturgy stuff. Again, the church in person thing. In the, in the traditional historic liturgy of the church. Granted, I'm a Lutheran. We do the historic liturgy. And it's called historic for a reason because it's it goes back a ways. Um, her epistle readings and her New Testament reading would have been read for her. So she could have been more focused on her sermon. That's kind of the idea. I think that's um, a pretty good idea, actually. I don't really... Um, you know, my pastors don't stand in the pulpit and read scripture at length like this. That's done beforehand. We have a we have a we have uh, an Old Testament reading, we have an epistle reading, and we have a gospel reading. And then the and then the pastor, generally speaking, in in the Lutheran dish, tradition, at least in my church, the pastor preaches on the gospel reading and then ties in the epistle readings. Uh, as well as the Old Testament readings to the Gospel readings. That's what he does. That's his job. Okay. Um, so, something to be said here. Because, yeah, I just... Um, just, yeah, reading the scripture passage that you're preaching from, from the pulpit, while... I mean, it's not terrible. It'd be better if you just read it beforehand and then let the preacher, as it were, uh, preach on the text instead of, of wasting time reading the text uh, because it's kind of distracting right uh, you uh, have these passages read beforehand and you can focus on what they're saying and then when the pastor gets up he, he ties all of this together for you I think is a much better way to go that's a matter of opinion it is that there's nothing in Holy Scripture that says, hey, the pastor should not be reading uh, the Scripture passages from uh, from the pulpit. There's nothing that says we can't do that. However, uh, for centuries and centuries, the way it's been done is the, 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 the readings have been done beforehand, and then the pastor preaches. Now, granted, Mariah here is not a pastor. We've already talked about that. But the, uh, but the point being... Um, it's it just uh, it's just awkward almost for for someone to read these long passages of scripture from the pulpit. However, um, I must commend Mariah here for including a bunch of scripture. That's something you don't see a lot in the evangelical world. You see snippets of scripture here and there, and that sort of thing. And that's one thing I like about really even what McManus does in a lot of ways. He focuses on long passages of Scripture. Now, does he misinterpret them? Yes, he does. Is Mariah here going to misinterpret uh, these passages of Scripture? My um, consider, yes, she is that she is. However, at least she's trying to address Holy Scripture. That's important. That's important. So we give him props for that. Um, however, I would say this would be better placed in someplace else. Okay, that's just an aside. Let's move on. 
Moses says to everyone, all you need to do is be still, wait on the Lord. And then the Lord says, what are you doing? Why are you crying out to me? Haven't I shown you time after time after time the way that I show up? Haven't I groomed you? Haven't I shown my heart to you? Haven't I shown my spirit to you? Haven't I imprinted my life on you so that the next step that you were to take, you would understand where I was going? Haven't I done enough miracles in your life? Haven't I done enough miracles to open the gates of Egypt to let the Israelites go? Why wouldn't I do it again? Why would you wait for me now when you've been acting step by step? And I feel like so oftentimes we use waiting as an excuse for laziness. And what, the, what it says in First Peter is that obedience is energetic. Obedience moves. Obedience is active. You should know by all of the other experiences in your life the way that God moves. You should know by all the people around you the way that God moves. And some of you might be asking, how do you know if God moves? And that's a great question. I think the first thing that first Peter tells us is that um, you should live a life. It says, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life. And do you know where you can find God's life? In the book of the Bible, in the beautiful words of the scriptures. God's life, God's character, God's stories, God's words, they live here to learn how you're supposed to live in deep consciousness, in step, in rhythm, with awareness, to be awake to what God is doing, you must read the scriptures. That is the first thing that you can do to understand who God is. The next thing that you can do is you can take- Okay, that's, that's absolutely right. <laughs> um, I wouldn't call it deep consciousness per se, but just being, but folks, she's right. If you don't know your Bible, you're wrong. I, you know, I've said this many times. I say this to my Bible class all the time. If you're not reading the Holy Scripture on a daily basis, you're wrong. You're wrong. If if all you're depending on is listening to somebody like me on a podcast, or you know, completely. Well, look. Here's the thing about the 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 Lutheran liturgy the historic liturgy is you could just go to church once a week and you'd be in pretty good shape for knowing Holy Scripture. You would. It covers the whole counsel of God. Whereas Mariah here is just kind of, you know, picking and choosing, grabbing here from there to try to make some point. But I would still say that as individual Christians, if you're not engaged in reading Holy Scripture um, on an individual level, uh, you're wrong. You need to be reading the Bible. And that's what Mariah is saying here. Now, as much as I disagree with this whole uh, facade of, of production value, and and I disagree with with her husband allowing her to have the big target of, of preacher and pastor put on her back by the spiritual forces of darkness, as much as I disagree with that, what she's saying here is not wrong. You should be reading your Bible. That's what she's saying here. I agree with that. Let's move on. Take a look at your experiences. You can say, okay, I see God. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I see God when I did this thing. I saw God move here. I saw God work in my friend. I saw God heal my family. You look back at your experiences and you, and you remember the ways that God has moved. And all of these things, all of these words, all of these experiences, they create a, a more complete picture of who God is. 
But something that's really, really unique about the story of Harriet Tubman and the story of Moses is that the miracles that they asked for, the ways that God led them was always for others. And I struggle in my own life so much with knowing, am I making the right decision? I probably had that conversation with God 20 minutes ago. Am I doing the right thing? Where am I, where, where's my life headed? What am I supposed to be doing? What is the end goal? And that's the wrong question to be asking. If my questions, my prayers, my desires in conversation with God are always pointed towards where am I going? Where am I leading myself? That's not the conversation God's having with us. I'm missing completely the conversation that God wants to have. But when I'm moving towards freeing others, if my dreams are pointed at others, at including others, then that's where God is leading. You're always moving for others when you're... All right, so this is the big problem I have with um, evangelical preaching in general is it's this vague gobbledygook of, oh, it's, it's for others. Okay, so my question to Mariah would be, um, you've got a friend who says that he wants to, that in order to be fulfilled, he has to engage in sodomistic relationships with other men. What do you do about that other person? See, she's not being very specific here. She's not making her claim as to what God wants from you in reference to the Ten Commandments, which permeate all of Holy Scripture. If you want to know what God wants from you, understand the Ten Commandments. That's what Luther teaches. And he is absolutely right. And so this vague kind of, we should just, you know, we should be worried about the other, we should love, is never defined specifically in how love plays itself out. That's the problem. And that's what Mariah is not addressing here. How do we focus on others and not ourselves? Where in Holy Scripture do we go to find out how to focus on others and not ourselves? It's the Ten Commandments. She should be pointing this out. But yet it remains this anarthrous, gray kind of, oh, just, you know, do it however you feel it type of situation. Not good. Not good at all. Let's move on. You're moving with God. Moses wanted miracles on behalf of others. Harriet Tubman was moving to set people free, to experience their freedom. It's a beautiful model for what we are to live by. God wants to heal many. God wants to heal you. And that is the way that you heal, is by praying for others, is by living for others, is by dreaming for others, praying for others, celebrating with others crying with others. Okay, so now here is where I'm particularly confused because the focus is supposed to be on others, but really, it's focused on yourself. This is how you are fulfilled by focusing on others, see? It's a quandary. How are you fulfilled by focusing on others? I want to be fulfilled. I want to live a fulfilled life, uh, a life of meaning and purpose. And so how do you do that? You focus on others. But you're focusing on others so you can have a fulfilled and meaning, meaningful life? 
a purposeful life? All right, that's a problem. This is this is the, this is the tough part of living as Jesus as our example, because he lived not for himself, not so he could gain something, but so that we could gain could gain eternal life and salvation. That's how Jesus lived. That's the challenge we face. That's a, that is a very interesting and difficult challenge, because it says that even if we're not fulfilled. Even if we're not feeling it, we live for others. The best example I can come up with is, you know, I remember when old boy was born, my son Isaac. My my wife, for the most part, was the one who got up in the middle of the light, middle of the night to take care of him when he was crying. That's living for others. The guy who goes out. And is he's that guy who's hanging off the trash truck. And when the trash truck stops, he picks up that trash and throws it in the in the in the in the truck. Why? Not because he's trying to fulfill himself, but because he's trying to provide for his family. That's the kind of stuff we should be talking about. Okay. That's where I'd like to see Mariah go with this a little bit. Talking about living for others. What does it look like to live for others? It's that's the that's one of the biggest shortfalls. I'm convinced of pop evangelicalism is they 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 cast out these big these big dream scenarios where you're 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 going to if you come to Christ you're going to be living out these big dreams you're going to be so fulfilled and you're going to have a complete life and while in some senses that may be true I'm a truck driver. And there are days when I don't feel very fulfilled being a truck driver. Job sucks. Job's hard. Don't want to do it. Why am I doing it? Am I doing it so I feel fulfilled? That's the question I have to ask myself. Hopefully, and most of the time, God be praised, the answer is no. I'm not doing this so I can feel fulfilled. I'm doing this to provide for Jen and my children, my wife and my children. That's why I'm doing it. And I may not f- be feeling very fulfilled in that situation, but that's what we're talking about here. And that's where, again, we talk about historic faith, the Lutheran faith, where Mariah, had she been equipped with that sort of uh, catechesis, would be able to talk about vocation and these sorts of things. But as it turns out, she's not. And what she's going to do is just talk about these anarthurist, you know, live for other uh, types of notions, which most of us translate in our minds as, oh, we've got to go feed the hungry, the poor, the no. What you got to do, dear trash truck rider along, is you've got to get up at some ungodly hour tomorrow morning and go do your job so you can provide for your family. That's what we're talking about here. That's where I wish she would get specific on these things, and she's not. Let's move on. If you're not experiencing the guidance of God, maybe you're trying to look for guidance only for yourself and not for others. If you're stuck at a crossroads, ask yourself, is what I'm doing for others, is what I'm moving towards for others, or is what I'm doing only for my benefit? Is what I'm asking God only for my benefit? Is what I'm moving towards only for myself? 
ask God how to live for others. It's the beauty of the scriptures, the beauty of the New Testament, the beauty of these letters from Peter and Paul and all of these, these people that lived for others. They, they celebrated others, they corrected others, they, they walked with others, they listened to others, they encouraged others. Their lives were about the other. Some of these people had faced every hardship possible. Some of these people were imprisoned and and writing these letters from who knows where. But finding the other to tell them that God was for them. They found the other to encourage them to a life of holiness. They always sought out the other. Are you self-focused or are you others-focused? Are your dreams only for you? Are they to help humanity? Miracles are not self-serving. Everything that God did through Moses and Aaron, everything that God did through Harriet Tubman, everything that God's gonna do through me, I want to do for others. Am I able to listen to the things that God is asking me to do? Okay, so right. So live for others. Friends, let me just break it down for you here. You're not gonna be Harriet Tubman. You're not going to be Moses. I'm I'm not going to be Harriet Tubman. I'm not going to be Moses. I'm going to be Matt. Matt is married to Jen. And Matt has two children, Isaac and Amelia. That's who I'm going to be. Could I do something great like Harriet Tubman or Moses? Of course. God can use people in world-changing ways. Am I going to be Martin Luther? Probably not. And that's the one thing that I find pop evangelicals have struggling with, especially pop evangelical preachers, is they want us to be all Harriet Tubman's and and Moses's instead of instead of Matt. Kind of boring to be Matt, but Matt does, with the help of God, what Holy Scripture teaches Matt to do. That may not change the world. That may not free slaves. That might not bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. But it does provide and teach and train my wife and children in the way of the Lord. That's what most of us do. Again, may there be some of us who do great things. Of course. Of course. Uh, but that's not the but that's but that's the exception and not the rule. It's exception and not the rule. And that's what I would like to hear these pop evangelicals talk about. Is like, look, you're not going to be the exception. You're probably going to be the rule. And being the rule is okay. In fact, being the rule is probably more difficult than being the exception. Because we don't get the accolades. The guy jumping on the garbage truck every morning to, you know, at 4 a.m. to go out there and pick up people's garbage. It's not going to get the accolades that Harriet Tubman or Moses have gotten. They're just not going to get that. But the question is, will they do it because this is what the Lord commands, A, and B, because their family benefits from this? And are they going to raise them up in the admonition of the Lord? That's the question. So it's not these big grand dreams. It's not these big grand dreams that... that scripture commands us you're not going to find pursue your big grand dreams anywhere in holy scripture 
you're not you're especially not going to find it in the Ten Commandments and that's why I would admonish Mariah here to not only not preach because she's putting herself in a bad place with the forces of darkness but she's also not understanding what's going on here that the Ten Commandments says it all that's how you live for others never mind your dreams there, there's no question there's no instruction on pursuing your dreams in Holy Scripture there's only instruction on living for others there and it's found again Mariah rightly points this out that we should live for others but where is that found how is that done and it's found in the commandments of Holy Scripture founded on the Ten Commandments okay because they're for humanity and not just my small life. That's how you make your life huge. That's how God expands your life, is when you live it for others. If you're looking out only for yourself, it'll cripple your understanding of how God moves. It's exactly the opposite of having deep consciousness. It's being unaware, going back to your everyday life, of being unaware of the way God is moving around you. One thing that, that blew my mind about these stories was that I had no idea the detail that God speaks to people. I had no idea that God could say, lift up your staff. It's not even the act of making it a snake. It's not even the act of, of parting the sea. It's not even the act of all of these outrageous things. The fact that he even thinks to tell you to raise the staff. The fact that he even tells you to go right or left. The fact that God cares so much about the detail. He wants to guide your steps. He wants to show you the path to freedom. And he wants you to bring others along. God is detailed. The closer that you get, the more intentional that you are with understanding who God is from the scriptures, through experience, through showing and guiding others, the more that you understand, the more detailed the voice becomes. And it's not an instantaneous, detailed voice. Moses was 80 years old when God chose him for this mission. It took Moses years and years and years to become this person. And it's gonna take every single day of us deciding to live for others, to understand the character of God, for us to become people who are so deeply conscious, aware and awake of how God's moving. So how do we do this? How do we become this person? How do we have a deep consciousness, a deep awareness of what God's doing? Well, the first thing is simple. You just say yes. The first part of this is obedience. Say yes. The next thing is to gear up. The scriptures say, I know how great this makes you feel, even though you have to put up with every aggravation in the meantime. You will be tested with suffering. You will be, you will be refined. This is, this is part of the refinement process. Being in tune with God means that suffering will come. Aggravation will come. You can't get to where you're going without suffering. But this suffering is for refinement. God's power isn't there for entertainment. It's there to refine you. But one of the beautiful things about, about suffering and, and this, this process of going through this life with God is another scripture in First Peter. It says, now that you've cleaned up your lives by following the truth, love one another as if your life depended on it. You won't, you won't always enjoy what you're going through, but you can have joy in it. 
You can have, you can find these moments of joy and you know how you get those moments. You serve others. You love others as if your life depended on it. Your existence doesn't depend on it. Your existence doesn't depend on love. You can go through your entire life without ever loving or serving another human being. But your life, finding your true life, finding your true joy, finding your huge and expansive life in a God dream requires you to love people like your life depends on it. Okay, so again, this turns back to self-centeredness in so many ways. We're trying to find our God dream. We're trying to be fulfilled. And that depends on us loving others. Yeah, it just it just cannot be that way. It's um, it does it doesn't work that way. And again, would would love to see these poppy evangelicals talk about hey, um, you're the garbage man at three four a.m. in the morning. What are you doing out there? Is that a God honoring vocation? Yes, it is. Why? Because you're providing for others. What are you out there doing? You've got a wife, you've got children, got to provide for them. I'm out there at 3 a.m. providing for my family. Do I want to be out there? Well, as a trucker, personally, I enjoy a lot of the aspects of driving trucks. I do. I get to drive, well, right now, I'm driving heavy haul which means I'm driving a gigantic amount of weight up to 120,000 pounds down the road at 70 miles an hour. That makes me feel good. All right. There's some parts of my job that make me feel good. But at the same time, um, you know, my, my job's hard. It's difficult. It's grueling. It's stressful. And a lot of times I don't want to be out there, but why am I out there? Right. And now, and where am I getting this strength? That's one thing Mariah has barely mentioned is the gospel and the forgiveness of sins, the power that we get from being adopted sons and daughters of the Lord of the Lord Christ. We're, we're his brother. We're, we, we are our father's sons. She, she doesn't talk about that. She's talking about, I mean, this is in what we would call in Lutheran parlance, we would call this, this is all law. This is all law. Do, do, do. Obey, obey, obey. Right? Isn't that what she's talking about? You obey all these things and you'll be fulfilled. That's not how you're fulfilled. You need the gospel. You need to know that your sins are forgiven. That's where the power comes from. And that's what, again, as we've always pointed out, since the lot of us have started doing these discernment ministry podcasts, is that we we point out that these evangelicals are all about obedience, law, and that sort of thing. And while obedience and law are important, and we should obey, and we should try to fulfill the law, where do we get that power from? We get that power because we've had our sins forgiven, that we've been baptized, that we can partake of the Lord's Supper each week, which is why, incidentally, we go back to the whole idea of us gathering together as a church, you can't partake of the Lord's Supper remotely. It doesn't work that way. We have to gather together. And that's where we get the power and the motivation to obey God's law selflessly. It's through the gospel. And Mariah does not mention that, unfortunately, one time through this whole sermon, which she should not be preaching. 
So at any rate, that's what we have here. Again, um, I still have a deep admiration for Erwin McManus. I think he's doing something very unique in pop evangelicalism. Although I think in a lot of ways, what he does is very, very misguided, particularly putting his daughter up as a preacher in the pulpit on a Sunday morning, as I've stated before. Um, and then, as you can see, she struggles with not only the details, but the main message. Where does she talk about the gospel here? She simply does not. Okay. Got to wrap it up for this week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.